This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Meg, today's host of the channel, and today we're talking with Marty Solomon about his new book, Asking Better Questions of the Bible, a guide for the wounded, wary, and the longing for more. Marty, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Very good to be here. Oh my gosh. Marty, first of all, I'm sort of intimidated to have you on the show because you're kind of a big deal in the podcast world. I'm wondering if you could begin by telling our listeners about who you are, uh, maybe a little bit about your podcast background and what led you to write your book. Sure. So I'm the president of Impact Campus Ministries. We plant campus ministries around the kind of the domestic uh, United States. And I started doing campus ministry back in 2011, and it was really close to there where I actually... Uh, met you, Megan, um, doing that work. And I was a teacher at heart. And so my campus ministry approach kind of revolved around a study, um, Bible study, a class, whatever you want to call it. And that's what I did for four or five years. It was a great time and it was growing. And then the organization asked me to serve in the role I'm in now as president. And I had to start traveling a lot more. And so we wanted to put the content for the students online so that they could get the content, whether I was in town or traveling or whatever it might be. And so a podcast was a great way to do it. We weren't, we were never really trying to start a podcast at all. And, um, but yeah, more and more people just, uh, started sharing it and listening to it. And then it's just become this weird thing that we're trying to steward. So my passion has always been about giving tools and resources that help us have a better reading of the Bible because bad readings of the Bible have hurt untold scores of people. And and that's why it matters. Not because the theology is right or wrong, or but because good biblical theology and good readings of the Bible should bring more shalom, more wholeness, more, more peace and goodness to the world. And a lot of our Bible readings were being leveraged to not do that. And so the podcast is about that. The book is about that. Anything I can do to help give resources in a way that's going to be helpful to people to be able to read their Bibles with more confidence, not just in their, like their own confidence, but confidence that the Bible is really something that's good. Um, Cause I think we wonder sometimes the Bible is good. So that's what, that's what I love to do. Oh, I love that. And I was actually, before this interview, I did a little um, walk down memory lane. I went on your website and I saw your YouTube page and I went all the way back to the archives <laughs> and I saw some great 
footage of us at uh, Washington State University in that little closet of a room where we used to meet for um, the Baymont class. Oh, goodness. Yeah, don't tell people about that archive. I I always wonder, like, how many people wander all the way back to the beginning of my YouTube (laughs) You can see that at martysolomon.com, everyone. (laughs) All the way to the bottom. Oh, Oh my gosh. Well, before we get started, can you tell me – I was curious about this. Did you have a specific audience in mind for this book? Like who would you envision would grab this book and gain the most? Man, and that was a part of when we, you know, started crafting a proposal and, and getting offers from publishers. That was, that was a big question. And I, I don't know, like, yes, but, but it was, it's a really wide, wide, wide net. Anybody, anybody in relationship to the Bible at all would have been my audience, whether people that are deeply, entrenched in it and love the Bible and everything it stands for and have grown up with it. People that have been around it, but have a whole bunch of questions, people that maybe aren't around it at all, but are curious, like anybody that even has any relationship with the Bible at all, which I would imagine is actually quite a a very wide group of people. uh, That's, that's who I wanted to to shoot my book towards. Yes, absolutely. And I think from what I know about you and you know, just you saying who you are and what you care about, that really aligns with your personal mission of providing tools and resources for anyone who engages with the text. So I think, yeah, that audience would be vast and wide. Yes. We obviously have a, we, we have a bias towards college students. I would, I love, I love it when what I do is most helpful to young adults and college students like that, but anybody that, that wants to be in on it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I guess one of my first questions before we get into the big um, content of your book is for the listeners who don't have a thorough understanding of the Bible, what do you hope is their biggest takeaway? Um, hmm. I think the, the idea that the Bible, oh, man, is like, it's this endless, bottomless pool of wisdom and uh, and goodness. I think the word power is when I think about what actually came out in the book, I think I wanted people to realize that the, the Bible's written through the power of, of God to transform us. Like the Bible has the ability to provoke us, to change, to transform us. And so, yeah, I think that would be, if that's one of the biggest takeaways that anybody, especially if they weren't familiar with the podcast or, or any of my other like if they read the book and came away with like, oh man, there's so much more going on in this book than I thought there was. Not my book, but the book of the Bible. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that would be that would be a real joy to me. Mm, that's good. Okay, well, I'm going to get us into some of the content from your book. Um, I'm just going to jump right in. Chapter one. You got it. You open your book with an introduction about seeing the text, the Bible, in context. And you quote Dr. Gary Burge when he states... We have forgotten that we read the Bible as foreigners, as visitors who have traveled not only to a new geography, but a new century. We are literary tourists who have, who are deeply in need of a guide. Um, why did you decide to lead with that quote? Yeah, I can remember, I, you know, I wrote my first draft. I was sitting in Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, and I remember sitting in that room and chapter one did not come out as I had intended like it just, it was actually really cool. Like it was this, this was a really fun, incredible experience to be a part of as the words just, you know, started flowing. And it, I ended up writing this chapter about the two things that I really believe 
deep down the most in, which is Jesus and and the Bible. And and that's not where I planned on starting. But it knows my material would not have expected me to open with chapter one of like the things I'm grateful for my fundamentalist upbringing for. <laughs> right, that's right. really what it was. It was like my fundamentalist upbringing gave me Jesus in the scriptures. And I'm so grateful for that. And and I liked that chapter, but I wanted to end that chapter setting us up. The whole book's going to be a journey. Okay, if we believe that much in the Bible, and I do, then what we need to remember is that the Bible is not ours. Like, we, we didn't write it. We don't own it. We're not the ones that possess it. We are, and I love when I ran across it, I remember reading that book, like it was a week before um, I, I wrote that first chapter and that quote just stuck with me. We are literary tourists. Like this is not, when we read the Bible, we're stepping into a world that's not ours, into a conversation we're not familiar with, and we need a tour guide. And that's what the, really the book was. I'm not the tour guide, goodness, but if I can connect people to a bunch of other experts and resources that can be tour guides, then, then that will be the big idea. Yeah, I thought that was so perfect um, just to kind of open us up because the whole, you know, this book that you've given us is full of tools and lenses and to open it with that statement was so powerful because it kind of, you know, put us in our place as the reader to say, oh, this is how this is how we're coming to the table today. Like this is where we're, we're at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, you say that relying on our Western thinking as we read and interpret scripture is like playing the song of scripture with only the left hand. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. So I use this metaphor of when anybody that has ever been around somebody that plays the piano um, knows that kind of in your left hand, you're laying down all this really like bass chordal structure. It's the foundation. It's the baseline of the song. It's going to give it depth and, and, and breadth and beauty. And you play the melody over here in your right hand. And, and I I can remember um, my teacher talking about how Eastern and Western thinking were two different things. And it was like two different sides of the same coin. And both of them were super important and helpful in studying the Bible. And I felt like that metaphor was beautiful, but I, I always felt like it didn't quite go far enough because I felt like, yes, both perspectives are important or or beautiful, but one of them is maybe more significant because it is the perspective that the authors had and that the audience had when they, the whole conversation of the scripture is really the, the one perspective. And so I kind of equate that to the right hand of playing the piano. And if you were just to play a song on the piano with your left hand, then uh, unless you had insider information, it would just sound like a, a mess of bass chords. Wonderfully played, beautifully played, but you would never recognize the song without the melody. At the same time, if all you had is a melody, so it's not that our Western doesn't bring something beautiful to the table, because it does, and it, it brings our Bible study depth and, and breadth and color. But really, if all we ever have is that perspective, I don't even think we're recognizing the song for what it is. And and so I always kind of like that metaphor of right and left hand uh, the song of scripture, if you will. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I love that. And I'm going to throw a new metaphor that just came to mind as you were talking about this, because I have a five-year-old, almost six-year-old son, and we were talking about um, colors the other day. And you were just talking about bringing more color. And, you know, I was teaching him about primary colors 
And then the difference between mixing the colors to get new ones like red and blue make purple. And if we add white, it can change the hue of the color. And, you know, that's what I even as an artist, that's what I'm thinking in my mind. Like we read the text and we can have a certain perspective that's like reading through with primary colors. But then when we see this other layer, then we get a whole new array of an experience, way more colorful, way more rich, so much different tone, you know, which is just so powerful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I love that metaphor too. I'm going to add it to my, I'll try to remember to tag your name on credit on that one. Cause I like that one. That's good. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, play with it, make it a little more, you know, zhuzh up. Um, <laughs> so for the next one, I'm thinking, um, I'm not trying to give too much away for your book because I really want folks to, you know, who are curious, I want them to go and buy it and support your work. But when we get into the chapter three, you're starting to teach us about the literary tools. And when I first learned about some of these, it literally changed everything for me as a reader of the Bible. Um, and I don't want to give too much, but I'm curious. Can you tell us which of the literary tools are your favorite? Like which one for you transformed the text in the most beautiful way? Yeah, I think I think the one that has been the most impactful for me is learning about chiasmus. And it's one of the ones we discuss in that chapter. And there's a lot. And you're right. Once you start seeing Bible as literature, and I know that that phrase has been used in a really textual criticism, like that word, that phrase has been used to mean something other than I love the Bible. But when you start to realize that the Bible is a beautiful piece of literature and that there are literary tools being used, it does radically change the way that you interact with it and can and can read it. And so, yeah, chiasmus, which is really uh, a form of parallelism. And it, the one that I'm referring to when I say chiasmus is an inverted parallelism. So it means that there's like these two sides to a story that mirror each other and they literally kind of this, the whole story is formed to point towards the center. And what it is, is it's once you, once you realize that you're dealing with a chiasm, you all of a sudden realize that you have a treasure map because these ancient Eastern writers form these stories in such a way that they could bury a treasure at the middle of a story and get you to realize it. Cause they all believed that discovery was so important to the learning process. They could just tell you the truth. And that's what a Westerner does. We just tell you the truth and then defend it. But the Eastner believes that you'll have a much better relationship with the truth if you can discover it. And so they want to bury treasure. They want to, they don't just want to tell you the truth right out in front. They want to tell you a story and bury the truth in the middle of it somewhere. And we're not talking about Bible code. We're talking about a literary tool. And those are two very different things. But chiasm, when when I started realizing there were there was buried treasure all over, especially in Torah, but everywhere. Uh, it was uh, all of a sudden. I mean, that, that invigorated my Bible study. Uh, that, all of a sudden, there was just new things and new treasures and new depth. And it didn't change anything I had ever learned on the surface, but it brought all kinds of that same depth and color we were talking about earlier to my Bible study, and I loved it. Yeah, that's the best. And um, I think, you know, so much of our time spent in the Bible is that surface level. And then when we learn about these tools, that it really, it almost puts like, humanity or like flesh on the scriptures that we're reading. And I, I know for me, when I first learned about chiasm, I, I went real hard and I was looking for chiasm like every single page. So it's just funny to see, you know, once you learn these tools, how excited and, and, and eager you can get to find those things. It's just so awesome. Absolutely. Which are great words to describe a posture towards the Bible. If you can say eager and excited, that's, those are two great, great yeah, things. Yeah. Right. 
Um, you also say that readers will learn to read the historic books of the Bible as both inspiration and as cautionary tales. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, a great example of this would be like when you were reading the the history portion. Like, there's a whole portion of our Old Testament that we would refer to as history, and understandably so. And that's on one level, that's totally it is what it is. But the Hebrew mind doesn't see those books as history at all. They they literally categorize them as prophets, and so books like First Samuel, uh, what what comes off to us as just flat out history, is actually prophet. And that's because the, these history tales have an agenda. They have something they're trying, if they're going to take the time in an ancient world to write down and use the parchment and use the energy to tell a story, they're not just trying to tell us an unbiased report of what happened. That might be what we do in our world today because we're trying to convey facts. But in their world, they're wanting to convey the facts in such a way that we will be different, that we will learn from our past mistakes. That will. So when you're reading history, you're not just reading uh, like just the details of what took place, but they are inspirational. They are, they do serve as cautionary tales. They, history is so much more than just history. There's there. And when, and once we learn that, well, then we start reading history through the lens of what is the author? There's what the author is telling me, but what does the author really want me to hear? And at that point, history now has the, the potential and the opportunity to start shaping and changing and transforming my heart. So that would that would be a good example of what that might look like. Yeah, I love that. And I think too, you know, sometimes we forget that this book is so full of justice, you know, like social justice of this time. And when we look at these parts of the scripture with that lens, we can see like, oh, there was this agenda for justice. And what might that mean when we read it with that lens rather than just like historical account for accuracy, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And that when we think of the history, we often think of these, of just history of people's moral failures. And yet behind all of that is a much bigger, larger, wider tale of why those moral failures mattered. And so when you, you start to, and, and yeah, you're absolutely right. There, there's always this, I mean, the Hebraic mind, the world of the Bible the Psalms say the foundation of God's throne is righteousness and justice. And there's like, there are that there's depth packed into those Hebraic ideas of righteousness. And it talks, speaks of wholeness and of restoration and everything being in its proper place. And so running underneath all of this is a foundational view in the Hebraic mind that we need to be putting the world. Modern Judaism calls it tikkun olam, the repairing of the world. They wouldn't have used it back then, but that's the phrase they use today. Like we are engaged in this process of putting the world back together because that's what got us up to. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. I love that. Um, I also loved, you had a chapter that was called Putting the Prophets in Their Place. And I think this was one of the most powerful chapters for me. And it was so simple. I thought, you know, like things can be so simple, but so powerful. And I think one of the main things that I took away was the timing of the prophets. It was different than what we as Westerners might assume about the prophets. I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about um, that misconception that we as Westerners have about biblical prophets. Yeah, I think especially uh, New Testament or Christian readers approach the Bible when we get to the prophets, and the prophets are really doing two things. They're telling the Jews how badly they screwed it up, and they're telling uh, everybody in the future about Jesus coming. And not that there's not some really beautiful nuances to those two 
points, but the biblical prophets are really trying to speak to their immediate context. Like, so when you're reading a prophet, it's not just like the prophets. There was a lot of prophets over a very long extended period of time. So understanding, did this prophet come when everything was really like in the, what we call the pre-Assyrian time period, when everything was great and you're adding house to house and field to field and you're just living in economic prosperity and it's wonderful. And why would you ever question it? Because there are some and knowing that when you're reading a prophet, that's a that's that's big context. Or is the prophet coming when everything lies in destruction and ruin and you're wondering if God's even real? knowing that really impacts the message of the prophet or is the prophet being written as you come back home uh, after exile and you're needing to rebuild just the idea, just that one idea, let alone four or five other ideas, but just the idea of when in history does this prophet show up and to who radically changes how, because the prophet doesn't just exist in a vacuum to talk to us about Jesus someday. The prophet really is talking to God's people about the world they live in, in that moment, and, and give them an invitation from God to join in what he's what he's doing in the world. Mm, yes. And I, I love that shift that rather than when we pick up a prophet, we look to the future, how it applies to us today. But rather than that, looking at that context that they were in, that they were experiencing, that they were writing in, I just loved that so much because, you know, when I read through the prophets, I need that understanding of what's going on so that, yeah, I can apply it to my own life and think of like if, you know, Ezekiel was here today, you know, what was his context? What would he have been saying and how that might change what I'm seeing in our world today and how I'm showing up and interacting with our our current issues or our current um, ways of being set apart as a Christian? Yeah, I think that's like a perfect example. We like to think the prophets were always talking to us as current readers because they're prophets and they're talking into the future. But when I can see the conversation that Ezekiel is having with his original audience, and I can understand what that conversation was and what took place, and if then I can take the principles and the application of that, and I can now pull it into the application of today. Or as you worded it, what would Ezekiel say if he were here today? Like that's the, that's the jump that we want to be able to make, but it requires us staying in history for a little bit. We have to read that prophet in history and stay in that window and complete the, the conversational transaction, if you will, and then take that back with us into our current setting. And then all of a sudden the prophets become far more useful to us as we contemplate where we sit now. A hundred percent. I'm even thinking... You know, there are so many prophets that are used to, you know, have um, like, I don't know the right terms, but like back a moral standing on certain things. And we might completely miss the point of that prophet that might have otherwise, you know, just given us some blueprint of how to interact with our world today. You know, we could easily get frozen in this is the right thing because I'm believing this prophet is saying this to me today rather than let me really dig into this and have a conversation, dig into it with my Bible study and see how it applied back then and lifting that and laying it over what we're experiencing today. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. Love it. Um, well, moving right along, you get into the Gospels, which I loved. I loved. I was waiting for it, and I'm so glad it came. The good news about the Gospels. And this chapter, like most of your book, was short but packed with such great information. And 
Um, I'm curious, can you talk to us, don't give away everything, but give us a little bit about um, why it was important to include information like historical context, cultural context, and you even did some political context when we talk about the Gospels and maybe even, you know, share why it's important to include those things when we talk about Jesus. Yeah, and it's really similar to what we were just talking about with the prophets. Like Jesus doesn't exist in a vacuum either. Jesus is talking into his current context, and he, for whatever reason, uh, God chooses to show up as Jesus in the middle of a Jewish world in a Jewish cultural setting as a Jewish rabbi having a Jewish conversation with a dominantly Jewish audience most of the time. And so understanding that means that I can now understand the conversations that Jesus is having, because he's not having a 21st century American conversation. He's having a first century Jewish conversation in a particular context. And so that's an immediate reason. But man, there there is a ton of information in that chapter. Um, and it, because there's so much context, and it blows my mind that we don't deal with some of it more. We're getting better at that today, I feel like. But like when it comes to the teachings of Jesus, like these are the, this is the most important stuff for so many of us as Jesus followers. This is the good stuff. So understanding things like, so again, it, let's, let's look at it as a piece of literature. Understanding that gospel was not a new idea. It was actually a, uh, a, a political genre of communication and a declaration and a proclamation that there was a new Caesar and a new reign, a new rule, a new kingdom, whether it was the kingdom of Rome or the kingdom of Greece, like they were used to a gospel. That was something they were used to and had been for centuries prior to Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John. So when they when they write their, their gospels and they say, this is the euangelion, this is the gospel, this is the good news, those are fighting words. They're essentially saying, I know that, you kn- that you're familiar with a current kingdom, but I'm here to announce a better king and a better kingdom. So even just from a literary perspective, but then there was the, the, the world was changing because of the influx of Hellenism and what the, as the Western world, as Alexander the Great essentially conquers the civilized world in the West and brings that Western way of life and that Western um, just healthcare and education and athletics and art and I mean that that's that radically changes a world that we're living in when we're no longer just you know going to get water from the well every morning but all of a sudden I you know I have pavers on my streets and and marble rooftops over the shops and and and, and art around every corner and a show in the theater and games in the arena and I mean that to understand that the world is going through that kind of upheaval and and that it's responding with all kinds of complexity and nuance, just like in our world today, nothing's monolithic, but there's all this Jewish complexity, and that's just Judaism. But this Jewish world of Jesus is in turmoil, and and he's speaking into all of that. So to have the tools of history and to have the tools of context as you read your Gospels is going to be critical to making sure that we're hearing Jesus through the appropriate lens and not a lens that we want to kind of push onto what Jesus is saying from our own spot in history. Yes. And when we have those contexts in place and we encounter Jesus, I think for so many of us who either grew up in the church or who have become so familiar with the character and the person of Jesus, having these tools now, it almost like radicalizes who Jesus is. You know, like there is this tame portrayal of 
you know, the sweet white Jesus that came to mm -hmm. save. Mm -hmm. But then when we have all these tools, we really have to encounter a completely radical Jesus because they're, that's who he is. And we didn't have those, those clues before. And now with, you know, just digging into this books, even it just felt like, yeah, we have such a radical perspective of Jesus now because we know all the things that he was speaking out against. We know the things in which he was standing up against. It's just so wild. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's one of my passions about that portion of scripture for sure. Yeah, it's so good. Um, okay, well, in chapter eight, you talked to us about the letters and you gave us this really awesome diagram. And um, I would love for folks to buy your book so they can see this, but you give us the narrative of God's story. Can you share a little bit about what that is and why you shared it toward the end of your book? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that our culture and the last generation or two, or maybe even three are really good at is seeing reality through the lens of story and of narrative. I don't know if it's because media has helped us see our life as like a movie or, but we relate to, to reality through the lens of narrative and story. And so uh, to be able to talk about the Bible, like I was trained in Bible college as a professional, as a professional Christian, I was trained to encounter the scriptures through the lens of systematic theology. It's about a set of truths and the Bible supports these truths, and now you go tell the world these truths. But really, what we don't have a the Bible is not a systematic theology textbook; it's a story. And so, to help us, I think to help a lot of us understand God's story as a, like there is a history, there is a there's a narrative, there's an arc, there was a beginning, there is a culmination as the story tells it. There's a resolution, there is an ending, a beautiful ending at the end, and. And there's a movement throughout history of what God's been doing in the world. I shared it at the end of the book because I feel like it's, I think we put the the climax of the story, the point of the story in the wrong spot as Christians typically. And so in that chapter, one of my favorite um, quotes that I, I can't even believe I actually wrote it. Um, it, was, <laughs> it sounded so fun when it came out on paper was, I feel like, Christians have often made Paul our ethic and Jesus our misiologist. And what I mean by that is one of these voices is telling us like what our ethic is, what does morality look like? And we love the letters of Paul because they're straightforward and there's a bunch of imperative language and he's telling us what to do. And we love to see Paul as our ethic and Jesus, he's kind of like a Jewish rabbi and he's using parables and he's kind of hard to understand. So, <laughs> yes. And he tells us to go make disciples. So what we do is we switch them. We love to make Paul our ethic and Jesus is the one telling us what to go and do. But that's backwards. Jesus was our ethic, and his ethic was love God and love others. And Paul affirms it over and over again. What Paul is doing in his letters, or other New Testament writers, is he's helping—he's the misiologist. He's not the ethic. He's trying to get us to understand how to live out that um, ethic— in our each each of our unique context, whether it's the Church of Philippi or the Church in Ephesus, church, all these things were different, which is why Paul can say so many different things about everything from women to uh, imperial engagement to meat sacrifice to idols. His responses vary, not because the ethic varies, but because how we live out the ethic in each context is going to be different. And getting that kind of reordered um, and making sure the climax, Jesus is the climax of the story. That's the pinnacle where the story finds its like greatest fulfillment, not Paul. 
but we kind of get those backwards in my mind. So I, I saved it till that spot in the book to try to bring some clarity to one of what I think is probably one of our big mistakes when it comes to good or bad readings of the Bible. Mm, oh man, I could relate to that. Um, you know, especially when I, everybody, you know, I became a Christian late in life and I think I was one of those little, um, Paul disciples. I was really fired up about, you know, right and wrongs, even just for myself and like how to do this thing right. But really coming back to the whole point was Jesus and his message was love. It wasn't about strict morality, strict doctrinal code. It was just love your neighbor and love yourself. I can't imagine how Paul would roll over in his grave if he knew that we like took his teachings and like interpret Jesus through our Paul rather than the other way around. He would he would freak out on us and write one of those very angry letters, I think. <laughs> oh, he probably has one already penned and ready to deliver. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, Marty, even as like I'm one of the original Bayma alums and yeah, podcast listeners, and even with all that, I still found so many treasures in your book. And it, it gave me, um, yeah, it almost like rekindled this fire in me to remember like how good God's story is and how good our God is. And I was just really grateful to to be able to read your book and have that um, that experience for myself. It was really, really encouraging. So I just wanted to share that with you today. Oh, no, thanks for that. I, I'm glad you found it that way. It's beautiful. Yes. Okay. Well, if you could leave us with one final thought, now that your book is out in the wild and everyone's obsessing over it, what would it be? Um, I would, I, I think you asked for one thought. I'm going to give you two. Um, one, one external and one internal. Um, one, one of them is coming from the external conversation. I have this launch team that's helped with the uh, the launch of this book. And it's been this beautiful, about a hundred people just getting to read the book, kind of a chapter a week and talk about it and discuss it. And I just kind of get to watch like what it's been like as the books, you know, it has come out into the wild. And, um, and, and one of the things that everybody else has picked up and I'm so glad, cause it is one of the things I wanted to make clear. They keep picking up on a theme that is we spend so much time in the world that I come from, the evangelical world that I still call home to this day. We spend so much time defending the Bible, like defending its historicity, like apologetics as king, proving mm-hmm. how right we are, <laughs> having an answer for every question that could ever get asked. Like we spend so much time defending the Bible that we spend very little time letting the Bible actually change us. Like we, we just have postured ourselves as gatekeepers to at the expense of being recipients and participants that like, and the Bible really doesn't need gatekeepers. Like God's going to be okay without it. Um, (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) So that that's one thing that has come from the external conversation internally. My hope and I, I use this term all the time. I just want better readings of the Bible. And I see that in, in two ways. One, one of them is on one side, there's the worldview and the paradigm that I grew up with, which we read the Bible and we find something that's like maybe ethically or, or morally challenging or disturbing to us. And one side of the conversation says, well, the Bible says it, that settles it. And there, and at least this really bad reading of the Bible, um, because we're not letting, we're not asking deeper questions. And usually that paradigm is being held by people that have something to gain. 
whether it's power or comfort or whatever it is, like they're trying to protect a particular worldview. On the other side of the conversation is one that says, well, I'm, you know, I'm morally disturbed by this. And so therefore I'm going to speak down to the Bible. Both of them lead to these bad readings of the Bible, bad readings of the Bible. And I long for us to realize, like, if we can assume, like, if we can have a higher view of scripture to know that there is something, there is a deeper wisdom. This is why Judaism belongs to the wisdom tradition, because they assume that the Bible is this transcendent, we say God-breathed or inspired thing, that there has to be more, there has to be more depth, there has to be more color. And so if there is something I find, it's the beginning of my journey, not the end. If there's something that disturbs me, that rattles my cage, that well, there must be something more here. So keep digging, because at the end of this search lies shalom and wholeness and goodness and something that's ethically and moral. It's good. It's the foundation of God's throne, righteousness and justice. So those are the two things that come out of me through this this little journey. Mm. Thanks, Marty. I love that. And, you know, I could actually talk to you all day, but I feel like we've taken up a lot of your time. So before I let you go, will you tell us what you are working on now? Man, right now it's this book launch, and that has really been consuming my my yes. time. I'm trying to keep you know the podcast episodes and the and the YouTube content. You know, I'm trying to keep that churning even in the midst of all of this. So that is really consuming. I'm going to take a little break uh, during the summer and take some time to just catch my breath and be with family and rest well. And uh, and then we're going to be back. And I think the the Bayma team with the podcasts and everything. We're going to do a bunch of planning this this spring and summer, and I don't even know what the next new thing is. I'm I'm plenty busy right now, but I'm also very excited about whatever it is that's next, and I'll look forward to some answers to that question. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, well, we're excited. You know, we're big fans of whatever you do, so f- keep us lo- in the loop. Um, I just want to thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed interviewing you, and I can't wait to see how other folks celebrate and appreciate your book. So thanks so much for today. Absolutely. Thanks, Megan.